Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now, introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the award. Wi- oh, I don't know. Have we won any awards? Probably no. Uh, well, our mums have you know, given us awards saying, what good yeah. effort. Nice try. <laughs> True. Uh, that's embarrassing way to start. Anyway, so yeah, welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, another podcast. And uh, this week, we've got a very, very special guest. Um, from also from podcast fame himself, we've got Mr. Adam Waythen from Full Stack Radio. Good evening, Adam. Hey guys, how's it going? Glad to be on. Oh, did I pronounce your surname right first? No, week? no one does. That's okay. I meant it's... to ask you that before we started. <laughs> we were talking to, we were basically talking about drywalls and stuff like that, and yeah, then yeah, exactly. we can actually get the uh, the surname right. Yeah, we've already got a recorded conversation about DIY that I think should uh, should go into the show. Devs do DIY. <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so we've got Adam from uh, Full Start Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to have you on. Me and Ed are uh, both huge fans of your show, and um, I've listened to loads of them. I think Ed said he'd listened to all of them. So um, doing a great job with that. And also we've got Ed Mann with us. Hello. Apologies. It's been, there's been a few recently where I haven't been on, but times are times are busy, and you know what, the weeks just roll by, and you know it's it's not always easy to get on. But it is nice to be back this week, and I'll try and get on as many as I can going forward. Not a problem. Well, you know, you two are dealing with like house problems and stuff and well, house DIY <laughs> and getting things ready to move. So, yeah, I, I haven't got the excuse. So I'm just, yeah, laying about and rented house just being like, yeah, I might as well record a podcast. So <laughs> I'm going to try and Watham. No, that's not right either, is it? Wathen. 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 Right. And I'm going to remember that now. Thanks, man. I mean, uh, yeah, we just heard off air, like, you know, kind of your trials and trepidations of today. But I really appreciate you taking the time this morning. Well, not this morning, this afternoon. Uh, three o'clock at your time to get on the podcast and stuff uh stuff outside of obviously development causing you problems today but yeah that's correct yeah that is great <laughs> yeah. um but like yeah I would just say like would uh, obviously full stack radio people will know you from but I was wondering would you mind introducing yourself to listeners that may not know you yeah sure so i'm adam uh, i host a podcast called full stack radio where i interview uh, different people about kind of everything in the whole software development world so i talk to people about uh, user experience i talk to people about system administration unit testing just kind of the whole thing so kind of if you're someone who uh maybe has a side project and you're trying to design the whole thing yourself and host it somewhere and do all the system in and uh then it's should be really interesting because um i just kind of talk to people that are that know things that i don't know about things that i'm interested in so the whole thing is really just an excuse to talk to people that are smarter than me that wouldn't normally talk to me if i didn't have (laughs) a a logo and a website behind it uh aside from that i'm a software developer at a company called titan co based out of chicago in the u.s i work remotely for them from home which is which is great we build like custom web applications and stuff for uh, different clients and partners that we work with uh i'm pretty active in like the laravel community that's probably where like you would see me most i've got a couple open source packages that uh, i maintain uh laravel related for the most part and uh yeah i don't know that's pretty much it web dev like to interested in testing object oriented design all sorts of stuff so no and yeah your podcast i couldn't say you know give it enough applause it's, it is a great podcast you've done a really good job and i mean like just coming on today i was talking to lou and i was just thinking how do you do it you know solo i have no idea how you're able just to kind of carry on the you know conversation i find that i always kind of lean on my friends you know when we're talking you know kind of with new people and stuff so yeah no really good job man i really appreciate the yeah. work you put in 
It's hard to be honest with you. Uh, I'm not. Uh, it doesn't come naturally to me at all to try and host a podcast. So I'm always trying to balance listening to what the person's telling me and trying to, you know, uh, elaborate on the things that they're talking about and ask some questions related to that, as well as always trying to keep questions prepared in my back pocket for, you know, yeah, if we ever silence. hit dead it's air the, or, yeah, or anything. That's it. The it's, dreaded silence. <laughs> it's horrible. And then as soon as I like close off the show, I'll have like an excellent, amazing, supernatural twenty-minute conversation that just would have been a pleasure to listen to for everybody. <laughs> yeah, right? You're like, why so did I record it's, this? It's, I do, and I do record it, but I'm not going to be bothered to try and splice it into the thing somehow. So, uh, no, I mean, it's getting better. And uh, I've got the opportunity to talk to a lot of really cool people because of it. So I'm uh, happy to keep doing it for sure. Was it just a, just a brainstorm that you, you had a while ago? Just you always wanted to, to get into doing podcasts as well? Because we just kind of decided it would be a good idea. Because at the time, we weren't aware of that many podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought it would be a good idea to to go ahead and make one is that kind of your motive as well or was there another reason uh, honestly i was i was watching a lot of uh, ryan singer's conference presentations and reading a lot of his blog posts and uh i just had all these questions that i wish i could have asked the guy and it came into my it, i came up with this idea of like what if i had like a reason for this person to talk to me like <laughs> if i have a podcast <laughs> then i can ask people to be on my podcast because if i was just like Hey Ryan, will you just like spend an hour talking to me on Skype for no reason and answering questions? Like, first of all, I would feel really stupid asking him, and second of all, I don't know if people would give me the time of day, or it would just create this awkward situation where it's like, okay, I mean, I guess you asked. I would be kind of rude if I said no, sort of thing. But no, it, it's it's worked out well for the most part. I mean, I I got to talk to him like pretty early, which is great. I got to talk to David Heinemeyer Hansen. Uh, on like episode nine, I got to talk to Kent Beck. Like, oh, yeah, I listened to that. It's outrageous, man. I, people I never ever expected to be able to have a conversation with, and now there's a recorded conversation between me and some of these people that's going to live, you know, on the internet forever. So it's it's pretty awesome. I'm I'm really excited about it for sure. That's similar to us last year, Ed, isn't it? We we had Taylor Otwell on, and um, we never would have dreamed that we'd have had that opportunity when we started doing it. And this was before any of the real Laravel Five stuff, even wasn't it? Yeah, it's funny how we've got like a little internet kind of fame, haven't we? Like not us, but like you know, kind of we have these people who are famous in the internet communities. We're just like, oh my god, and it's like, oh my god, it's Kent Beck, oh my god, and stuff like that. And (laughs) Kent Beck is a big deal, man. I I know. Well, that's it. Yeah, not little. Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, I mean, like you're saying, like your TDD um, talk that I watched again yesterday, and uh, you know, like you were saying, like he is God, pretty much. And yeah, (laughs) I I couldn't say, I couldn't, you know, argue with that. Yeah, Kent's awesome. I have to admit, I did. I listened to that show, and um, a lot of that stuff kind of went over my head. I'm I'm not massively experienced in the testing field, um, Adam. So there's kind of hopefully a few things that we can talk about with that today. I'd be quite yeah. interested to kind of um, discuss your learning path into that. And um, yeah, sure. I know I know Ed's got some more specific yeah. questions. As I mean, well. I, I, I suppose the first one I always like to ask is, how did you get into programming? Because obviously <laughs> that's the vehicle for like the podcast you have and everything sure. in your job. Oh, so. that's great. Sure. Yes, totally. So let me figure out what the best angle to tell the story from is. So I remember being in like probably the second grade, first or second grade, and uh, I had a librarian at my school and I was in like the gifted learning program. So I was pulled out of class a lot of time to do like one-on-one things with different people because I was bored and whatever, you know, whatever. (laughs) But uh we did a, he introduced me to HyperCard because we had Macintosh computers in the library. That was like the only Macs in the school. Um, and I got tinkering around with HyperCard and making it, you know, you can click a button and it would change this or whatever. I thought that was really cool. And, and then from there, I, I became 
as I grew older, when I was probably about seven or eight years old, I got really into professional wrestling. Like I was obsessed with pro wrestling. <laughs> so I was so like, is it, so is Ed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still am. I think I'm hoping you say that you're not anymore. Um, I'm not. I'm not anymore. But there's still a lot of nostalgia surrounding it for me, for sure. But uh, so what? When I was like ten years old, I was obsessed with like. Do you remember they used to have like these like online e-feds and stuff where yes. you could like create a wrestler and you <laughs> yes. would, like post on a message board and you do all this role playing and stuff and people <laughs> would use this software for like simulating matches like there was one called like Zeus and another one called like TNM and there was all these like pro wrestling simulators <laughs> I can't right I believe this conversation started it yeah right <laughs> yeah I do oh this is brilliant <laughs> so I remember like scouring the internet trying to find different wrestling simulators right because i was never satisfied with whichever one i was using and i just wanted to like play with every different thing i could possibly find and someone had like like a build your own wrestling simulator like tutorial in q basic so i was like oh man this is it so i downloaded that and got like a q basic like development environment set up and started like trying to follow this guy's instructions and like build uh, a wrestling simulator and then from there i just became like enamored with like being able to get the computer to do things so i started trying to build like an rpg there was all these like tutorials for building like a final fantasy 3 style rpgs and Basic and doing like tile systems and all this stuff and it was it was so fun and, and then i got into like making websites and stuff right like on like geocities and angel fire and stuff when i was like 12 or 13 years old and i started taking um programming classes in high school we had programming classes starting in uh, i think grade 10 so we did um what did we do we first year of programming i think was like turing um and then we did like some pascal we did some java towards the end there was like some some web stuff but by by the end of high school i was doing uh i was maintaining a website for someone who like was a entrepreneur who lived locally who had like a who sold like used machinery and stuff, and he had contacted the school asking if there's any students who'd be interested in like working on his website for him. And my teacher recommended me, so I got into doing that. And uh, then I went to university for computer science when I was done school, but didn't stick with it because I was just too burnt out. I went right after high school, didn't really take any time to figure out what I wanted to do, and it was a long commute. And, didn't have any friends there or anything so it was really hard to get into that kind of like you're in school mode right like everyone around you is working on the same stuff like for me it was like i was playing in a band and like i went to school yeah, these, week, like i just it. yeah <laughs> it, was just, it was like not a priority for me that wasn't like where my head was at so i did a year of that and then decided to take some time off and and then uh i got a job working out out west in the oil sands in canada uh, and i uh, did that for like two years and and my plan there was to was to save up a bunch of money and buy a house, and I wanted to start a recording studio because I wanted to record bands, right? Uh, I loved playing in bands. I loved playing music, and I was recording my own demos and all this stuff. And I thought, man, like I would, I want a career in music somehow. Uh, what could I possibly do? The only thing I could think would be like engineering, like sound engineering. Like I can record bands, I can make albums. People pay me money. Sure, this sounds like a great idea. So I really got into doing that for a couple of years, and I was using this software called Reaper, which I still use to edit the podcast, and is. It's created by the guy who created Winamp originally, Justin Frankel. So uh, it's Is like Winamp a st- still around. Sorry, I completely Winamp still around. Um, I mean, I I stopped using it after it was like purchased by AOL. AOL yeah, <laughs> sorry. Winamp three was like the final one that mattered. It really whips the llama's ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
but uh, that that Reaper software is like a super hackable um, audio editor. So you can write like plugins for it uh, in Python or in Lua now as well. But you could also write extensions for it in C plus plus. So. I got in their like IRC channel and I had all these ideas for features that I wanted to add and ways to simplify the workflow because I was doing so much crazy editing, like editing drum performances and all, all the stuff that was like really cumbersome to do. And I had built up all these macros and workflows and I thought, man, it'd be cool to somehow simplify this into something programmatic. And one of the guys in the IRC channel kind of got me uh, set up with their C++ extension library that they already had. He like created like a template file for me and was like, here, you can just like dick around in here and ask me any questions and I'll help you figure out how to get stuff going. So I started doing that and uh, I hadn't programmed since university because I would just, you know, I was burnt out from school and I just never entered my mind. So I started building extensions and stuff for that and I just rediscovered how much I loved programming. And I was like, man, this is like so fun. Like the things that I'm making here are like making me so much more efficient and simplifying my workflows. And I was releasing these plugins and stuff and everyone on like the message board for the audio software was like blown away. They were so excited about how much easier things were getting. So it was a really good time. And then I decided to go back to school for uh, software engineering at a local college and uh, did that for a few years and uh, finished that. And now I've been working as a software developer uh, professionally for about three years. So yeah. Well, you didn't mention of, um, PHP anywhere in there. When did that kind of sort of come on the scene then? When did you start? I, mean, like, I, I, I would write PHP back when I was like a teenager uh, working on websites and stuff just because that was the only way I knew how to uh, you know, process a form submission or whatever. That's right? it. Make up a lot of yeah. simple comments. Yeah. Stuff. yeah, yeah. So that was just like you know, drag and drop stuff into FileZilla on FTP or whatever. Like, no idea what I was really doing. I didn't really know that you could write real software in PHP. Like, in the sense that when I was in college, we did a lot of C Sharp and Java and C and, uh, you know, lots of object-oriented programming and stuff. And I didn't remember PHP being like that because it wasn't like that. PHP 4 days probably and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. It still barely has a reputation for that outside of the PHP community. So um, uh, towards the end of my college program, we had a lot of projects that were very self-directed as far as what technologies you would work with. But they were all web-based for the most part, which is kind of weird because it was very little web focus in the actual schooling but as far as the projects that we had to make they were always web-based which is kind of weird but almost everyone else built stuff in like uh net mvc uh because that's kind of what we had been doing in school but uh i was a mac user anyways because i had bought my macbook to record music and stuff right and trying to do net development on a mac is just like you have mono to, or virtual machines or boot camp like, yeah just happy right so I decided to like re-explore PHP and see what I could do there and uh, started discovering these frameworks, you know, like CodeIgniter and Symfony and then Laravel came along. And so I built a couple of projects with like uh, Laravel 3 and uh, it was, I was like really fun. And uh, so ever since then, I kind of taken PHP a lot more seriously and been doing it. Uh, you know, that's what all my professional development jobs have basically been. I had a little stint in there for a while where I was doing a little bit of uh, Rails development, which Ruby's an awesome language too, and I wish I had the opportunity to write more Ruby because I feel like the community, uh, I feel like I fit in better there than I do in the PHP community sometimes. But um, no, so yeah, that's kind of where the PHP stuff started as far as doing it uh, full-time and really 
taking it seriously and not just FTPing crap around. Yeah. Sure. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the includes. And I mean, it's great though. Like, it, so is it is it typical in Canada then at high school level for uh, students to t- be taught programming? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they might even do it earlier now, but we definitely had um, uh, computer programming classes. Like, there might have even been a grade nine one that I might have might have skipped because when I first entered high school. Uh, I knew I wanted to do programming after high school, right? Because we were part of this program where I went to separate schools for all this stuff. Like, since I was in grade five, I went to a different school than everyone in my neighborhood because of these different enrichment programs. And uh, so when we were going into high school to help us pick our courses, we had, like, you know, the guidance counselor would talk to you about what sort of stuff you were interested in. And, and me and another friend of mine who was also really into programming, they asked us, like, well, make a list of everything that you know, like languages that you know, whatever, stuff that you've done, and um, give that to us, and we'll pass that off to the people at the high school so we can decide, like, what courses would be the right courses to put you in. And uh, they actually put us both in grade 11 computer engineering and skipped all of... So in grade 9, I was in grade 11 computer engineering, and, and they didn't put us in any computer programming classes because they said that it would have been boring because we didn't know anything, or we knew the stuff that they were going to teach, which I thought was absurd even at the time because <laughs> those courses are prerequisites to get into university for those programs. So I would have needed to take them regardless. But uh, yeah, so we had like a computer engineering course, which I was really intimidated by originally, but actually ended up being pretty good because they taught us all about like boolean math and uh designing logic gate circuits diagrams you know all that stuff so a lot of stuff that's actually like uh proven really useful to have really ingrained into my head now uh like whenever i i notice that someone doesn't uh you know understand boolean operators properly i kind of take it for granted because i I could understand it back then yeah yeah, and I could see if you're just getting into web development through the web, like if like you're learning HTML and CSS and slowly working your way to the back end, those are going to be some of the thing, last things that you learn, right? Um, but yeah, so they teach it, uh, probably they teach it in grade 9, starting in first year of high school. And uh, all those different schools have different curriculums for it. It's not really like standardized what languages they teach or what the material is. But yeah, it's an optional course that you can take as long as uh, it's something that you're interested in for sure. That's really cool, yeah, because, I mean, in England, it's very different. Like, finally now, we're getting, like, I think it's uh, uh, primary school for us that's yeah. probably up to 10, uh, 10 years old. They are now getting started to be taught with the Raspberry Pi and stuff like that, which is good. But, I mean, I, cool. I didn't get into programming till I mean, I hacked on PHP and stuff like you did, you know, with kind of thing, yeah, like yeah. that type of thing, you know, when I was in my teens. But really kind of, like, looking into real languages until I was probably 17, so... No, it's good, like, yeah, that they actually do that. It's nice to actually, you know, because I, th- I think it is a fundamental skill now. I think understanding, at least, it's not magic and voodoo. Yeah, totally. I mean, even uh, I was talking to uh, Sean Devine, who hosts the Ruby on Rails podcast, and he has a really strong belief that Excel is programming, like Microsoft Excel is programming. And uh, building, like, really useful <laughs> spreadsheets is programming. Like, yeah. you have to do uh, some pretty serious problem solving and thinking there, and and if you work in an office and are responsible for anything, you're going to have to make a spreadsheet at some point. You know what I mean? So understanding <laughs> conditional logic and uh, iteration and you know just simple programming concepts is going to be really useful for just about anyone who needs to work with a computer at any point. It's scary. Yeah, it has come to that. I mean, it's not scary. It's great. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, that is true. It's quite, it's quite interesting to kind of listen to your stories because, I mean, what are you both now? You're what, sort of 10 years down the road from when you first got into it? Yeah, probably. Same for you, Adam? 
I don't know. For me, it's kind of weird. It's probably only been about five years of like really obsessed hardcore into it, doing it like as a as a full time passion. But yeah. That, uh, but yeah, that's probably about right as far as like um, you know, if you really add up all the time that was kind of spent tinkering on different things here and there throughout that whole my whole childhood, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, I'm I'm only literally three years into it. So when I when I kind of hear you guys talking like that, it makes me think, God, I've missed out on so much stuff. But you're a, I mean, when, when I, you're a pro gopher, you know. That's pretty cool. <laughs> in a previous life, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, when I when I got into it, literally, um, I mean, I, I was kind of self taught for about a year, basically just watching YouTube tutorials and stuff like that. I didn't, I, I didn't go to college and do any of the computer sciencey stuff and. I feel like I've kind of, I've kind of learnt enough to get by in the job, and you know I can kind of do the job pretty well. But I, I can't help but feel like some of the this sort of fundamental knowledge, if I had it, I'd, some of the things that confuse me now, it would make my life so much easier. Just just the whole computer science methodologies and all that stuff. I don't know if it would be that helpful to be honest with you. Like, there's some things that I'm glad I know, but at the same time, um, there's a lot of people that I went to school with that come out with you know diplomas or degrees that still don't know how to really build maintainable software. A lot of it yeah. is you're just not going to get taught in school. Like We didn't learn anything about really object-oriented design in school. We learned like object-oriented programming in the sense that a car is a vehicle and a yeah. truck is a vehicle. <laughs> or, uh, you know, we didn't learn... We learned like version control using SVN, even though GitHub was a super prominent thing, even at the time that I was mm. in college. So you still kind of have to take it you're learning into your own hands you're yeah. not going to like hold your hand through it so i think as long as you are uh, excited about it and i think the most important thing is you need like a mentor or at least someone that you can kind of lean on to get like to know like what should i be learning next or and, that, and that's kind of the most important thing i think i've always wondered why um well not really wondered why but i've always thought like getting really good at programming i feel like it needs to be more of like an apprenticeship thing than like a textbook taking tests sort of yeah. thing absolutely i mean have you uh, read the sandra mancusa software craftsmanship book no oh no that, that's a really good book like he talks about kind of like you know that it is an apprenticeship you know and software craftsmanship as a thing you know is kind of you, you know you're traveling through and you learn from other people and it isn't just some, i mean you you say a lot like in your in your podcast and also in your talks you know that you want to find the definitive answer but actually <laughs> There isn't a definitive art, you know, like, no yeah, one, yeah. you know, and it really is kind of like through time, it will change. And, you know, that if, you know, if like Uncle Bob is, you know, a go- you know, the God and then came back to the God and stuff, you know, they've been doing it for years and years and years. And really, you have to go through that kind of time. You know, yeah. you can't just skip these years of learning things and going through and failing and, you know, stuff like TDD, learning it, doing it wrong, you know, or finding out, oh, that wasn't really the best way to do it and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You need that time. It's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I've always said it's like it's more like uh, you know learning an instrument or something, uh, where there's no shortcuts. If your fingers don't know how to hold the chord or aren't strong enough to hold the fingers to the fretboard, there's no other way to get there than just by spending eight hours a day on it. That's exactly it. So, sorry, what was with the uh, podcast, the Full Stop Radio podcast? Like, um, how yeah. do you, it always sounds so professional. Now I know, you know, you being into music and stuff, obviously, you know, microphone set. I mean, <laughs> what, what is your setup like? What do you use typically? Uh, so I have a Shure SM7B. Uh, I'm going to nod like, my head. I agree. Uh, that's a yeah. great... <laughs> so that's, that's kind of like the industry standard broadcast microphone, right? So 
I had that kicking around from when I used to record bands because that's also the mic that they used to record uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. So it's very notorious in like the music world as well. And uh, lots of metal bands use it too. And that's like the music that I'm into. So I always recorded like metal and hardcore bands. And this was like the go-to mic for that. So I had this laying around in the closet and it was pretty awesome to be able to do Bring a podcast out, and yeah. <laughs> pull it out again. Uh, so besides that, it's not much. I'm using the SM7. I have a uh, Triton Audio Fethead, which is like an inline preamp to boost the gain on the SM7 because it's a notoriously quiet microphone. Uh, and I'm not willing to like get a really crazy expensive mic preamp setup. And then I'm just running that into a little two-channel Focusrite uh, Scarlett 2i2. Uh, but I only just started using that. I was using a M-Audio Firewire 1814, which is like an eight or nine-year-old Firewire 800 interface. And uh, I recently switched to uh, one of the new Retina MacBooks, so I didn't have and a Firewire for yep, anymore. That changed so. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, that's great. I mean, yeah, all that goes over my head, but I'm sure the people, you know, the audience, I mean, we use Yetis because we were just, we went on Twitter and we're like, how do you know what's the best one to you? And people recommended the Yeti microphone. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The blue one. Yeah, that's it. The Yeti blue. It seems to do its job quite well. So, uh, and do you just typically use Skype and stuff like that or Google Hangouts? Yeah. So, you know what? This is the trick to getting good sounding podcasts, which I haven't been able to do on every episode, but most episodes is I record my audio separate from Skype in a separate application. I just record it direct into Reaper. And I always get the person that I'm interviewing to record their audio locally as well. So they'll record into QuickTime usually because most of the time it's someone who doesn't have you know, the knowledge to use like a real audio, a digital audio workstation software. So I'll get someone to record it in QuickTime. I'll record the Skype call through Audio Hijack as a backup and I also use it uh, as a source to synchronize the two tracks. But I... I Whenever possible, I use the two local audio tracks, so it doesn't go through any of Skype's compression or any of that yeah, other that, stuff. Yeah, that is the trick. That's that. That is great. I mean, I mean, how long does it typically take you then to uh, like edit a podcast? Uh, sometimes, I mean, it can take anywhere from like an hour to three and a half hours. Yep. Um, <laughs> it, it depends. Some people, some of the conversations just flow really naturally. Other conversations, uh, I've had to you know chop words out here and there or. Or splice things together. Most of it is editing my own voice because I feel like I have a really hard time communicating things in a clear way. Sometimes when I'm trying to ask questions and I'm under pressure and stressed out about things. So I've even gotten to gone, had things happen where I listen to myself say like 600 words trying to ask a question that I should have been able to ask in like nine words. And I'll literally just delete it and re-record myself asking the question. Ah. And try and pretend that I'm still naturally involved in the conversation and just drop that in instead. But uh, the secret is that that is, I mean, that that is dedication. We we find, I mean, I find, yeah, we just use Audio Hijack. Um, we're yeah. not, the, yeah, I mean, we were starting to use separate feeds, each one of us, but I find I just don't, I think I don't have the patience. I admire even having the patience and kind of the will to, you know, kind of, I want it. But I suppose the thing is, is the nice thing about this podcast, you like, you know, stands the test of time. You can show people, you know, when you're old and gray, you're like, look, you know, I spoke to that person and sure, you know, yeah. it's, a history, it's a bit of time in history. Yeah. I have a pretty good editing workflow set up as well because of all the time that I spent recording. I was thinking you've definitely got, so. <laughs> you've got some behind not the experience. So bad. I could imagine if you've never done it before and you have three tracks of audio that you're trying to edit, uh, you know, grouped together and cut things out. Like, if you haven't figured out an efficient way to do that, it's going to be super painful. So yeah, I found that I found ended up just going back. It's like yeah, we're just going to use Audio Hijack and it'll be a WAV file and then I'll compress it using Audacity and all this stuff. Totally. So really sorry. 
so with uh, audio like editing, you use them Reaper, I'm guessing, because that yeah, sounds really that's... interesting. It's definitely something I'm going to have to check out after this. And is it like available across all platforms? And it's uh, for Mac, Mac and Windows. It's originally developed on Windows, but uh, I know even the guy who originally wrote it uses it on his Mac most of the time now. So it doesn't feel like a real Mac application. Like it doesn't feel like Logic or GarageBand or something, um, but it's works very well on Mac and it's really cheap and it's uh, you, it has got an unlimited trial. Like it just has like an egg screen and it's fully featured. The WinZip of a <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. <laughs> so uh, no, it's it's really great. It's a little bit um, it's a little bit of a learning curve. It's not super user friendly out of the box. Uh, you have to do put a little bit of work into it to kind of like massage it into working the way that you want to work but the amount of flexibility it offers is crazy and that's kind of the trade-off in general right if you want something to be customizable then it's probably not going to be easy to use out of the that's box, exactly so. yeah exactly you're not gonna have like the put you know they're just clicking on these things three buttons and you're done it's like a yeah. lot of configuration uh yeah. fraser we should have you on now hello. hello i'm here sorry i'm very late and uh yeah how you doing adam nice to meet you hey nice to meet you <laughs> so no, i'm just gonna sit here quietly and let you you guys carry on because uh, no problem yeah, man. So no, it's good to quite... see you yeah uh, you how got... was work then was it so busy then I'm guessing. it was good yeah we had a bit of a bit of a panic at the end of the day as as things always happen like the, the was game it something control... to do with the infrastructure of the place because we've you know it seems like three of these people well two people on the podcast today have, you know is having issues well not issues but you know house fun um it wasn't house fun it wasn't no it wasn't house fun no it was just pure work stuff uh yeah the the qa team we, we've released this game or we're putting this game out and we're getting it ready for accreditation and all this kind of stuff um and uh yeah we had some last minute kind of bugs found by qa that we had to we had to crack through and it was literally on it was on iphone 4 using ios 8 and it only happened when you kind of rotated the device a couple of times but it's something that we had to sort so had a bit of a panic at the end of the day um but uh yeah sorry i'll 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 stop interrupting and let you guys carry on with with what you're, no, you're man, going it's with. It's awesome. It's good to see you, man. Yeah, um, you too, man. Uh, so, other thing, Adam, is then, so I guess, obviously, you work remote. You were saying that, you know, when you introduced yourself. And um, I yeah. work remote. Well, I say remote. I kind of work more from home now. I used to be in the office up in London, but now I'm typically just at home. And I'm just wondering, like, um, do you, how does your company work then? Is it Does it use the extreme programming and agile principles or, you know, hair programming, code reviews? I'm wondering, how does that work remote? Yep, yep. So, um we work we're across uh three time zones or i guess yeah so we have people all the way on the west coast of the us and then all the way on the east coast as well so at most there's a 3 hour time difference between everyone and everyone kind of works whatever hours they want to work so uh, we can operate as like a pretty asynchronous team uh for the most part but we do have a lot of uh, we have like a stand up once a day at 1 o'clock which is kind of the one time one, one o'clock eastern which is where usually everyone is around and then we'll have like project check-ins, like quick 15-minute project check-ins for people on different projects uh, pretty frequently throughout the week. But I, don't, I wouldn't say that we are capital A, agile by the book with like <laughs> agile, a certified quite, you know, the scrum master or whatever. But we definitely work following like the original principles of the agile manifesto, right? And we do lots and lots of pair programming. I probably spend 60% of my day pair programming over Screen Hero, um, which is it's good enough that you get really annoyed when it doesn't work perfectly <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah when it, when it doesn't work you you scream it's like your car isn't it you just take it for granted and then you're like why is yeah, exactly working? exactly so uh credit where credit is due but still there's room to uh to figure out this remote pairing thing uh 
and get it nailed to perfection. As far as I understand it, the absolute best setup you can have is just two people using Vim and Tmux because that then you're seems not seems to be the but yeah the cool hip way of doing it. Yeah, well the the nice thing about that is you're not sharing any video, right? It's just literally bits and bytes coming down the wire, updating your uh, terminal sessions. Whereas with Screen Hero, like if you're sharing your full screen and I'm the only guy at work that works on my laptop exclusively. Everyone else is on like a 2560 by 1440 monitor. So people are doing a screen hero sending that resolution like X frames per second (laughs) just so you can see their text editor or whatever, right? So uh, it can be pretty challenging if you don't have a reliable, stable internet connection. But um, yeah, so we do lots of pair programming. We do a pull request kind of code review workflow. Uh, most things that are pair programmed don't go through the same sort of code review as uh, something that someone worked on by themselves because I kind of think code review is um, it's kind of like a, it's the next best thing to pair yeah. programming. I don't I think, think of them I as agree. like exclusive things. I think of it as like we'll do a code review if we couldn't pair on it. Well, because you know you you're not you know you can't see the story unfold, can you? You've just seen the no. conclusion and the story. And you only, is how you you only get see there. a diff. Yep, that's exactly right? it. Yep. So you never get to see, uh, you know, how does this, how do these design decisions fit in with existing uh, design decisions in the application? You have no idea uh, unless you pull it down and look over it. And it's really challenging, especially if, like, uh, well, probably the biggest challenge that we face with code review is uh, we we have quite a few projects going at once usually, um, and oftentimes uh, something will need to be reviewed, and it'll be something someone submitted to a project that you're not actually on. So it can be really challenging to review someone else's code on a project that you're not intimately familiar with. And a lot of time it just devolves into, you know, style guide checking. That is exactly like, what, yeah, I was going to say, like, I find that, you know, code reviews really do. If you don't know the ingrained problem, you know, you end up just going with like syntax type things and yeah. small little tweaks. And you're just like, this doesn't feel like a good enough, you know, a worthwhile cause for a code review. It just feels yeah. like I'm nitpicking. Yeah, exactly. You're not talking about like the actual solution to the problem. You're talking about like, don't do a for each here. You could use an array map That's or whatever. Exactly. It it, yeah. It's like, I'm being cool here. And it's like, no, this isn't actually helping. This is it's not like an architectural <laughs> thing. You're just being, you know, a bit picky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't really see like, I mean, a lot of that stuff you could probably automate if you really cared to do it so well that's it yeah i mean there's like a scrutinizer and stuff like that which you can just yeah get through you know, passing these things uh, commits through um do, do you use like a style like kanban style board uh like online boarding we've tried a lot of things uh we have trello for a couple projects we lately we've been uh having quite a bit of luck using a tool called code tree have you ever heard okay. of that one no no code tree is is let me see if I can. What's the elevator pitch for CodeTree? CodeTree is like GitHub issues backed Trello. So um, if you've ever used like Waffle.io, it's kind of similar to that, but the interface is much better, in my opinion. But it's made by uh, the guy who um, he's a developer at Drip. All right. So if you ever listen to like a, the startups or the rest of us podcasts, wherever he works with Rob, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's really cool. So you can go into CodeTree. You get like a Trello style view. You can create cards, and when you create a card, it creates an matching issue on github so at the end of the day github is like your single source of truth for everything related to the project uh and if you ever decided to drop code tree you know you would still have all your information would still be in github where the rest of your stuff is Uh, but other than that it like works basically the same it also has some extra things like estimates like point estimates and stuff if you care about that which we don't use but uh yeah it's it's been pretty good so far i don't know if if it's gonna 
you know, survive the test of time for us. But I think a lot of the thing with project management tools is, uh, I don't know if it's really the tool's fault all the time that it doesn't work out. A lot of times... I think it's just- some people, yeah, it's people get bored of it, Ethan. You know, they, they, you know and, and they just want something new or someone picks out one problem with it and that to them is a big issue then, yeah. Yeah, I like Trello a lot. Yeah, uh, Trello's but- a very simple, easy, you know, I mean, I know that, Lou, you use that, don't you? Yeah, we do all the time now. It's um, it's we don't even really email anymore. Yeah, Trello's great. I mean, I would say the best system I've ever used has been stickies on the wall in a real office. That's still by far the best <laughs> one for me. Yeah, every, everything something... else is a trade off, isn't it? Really? Yeah, because if unless you have like a separate monitor that you keep Trello open on all the time, it's not going to be the same. And even then, I don't think it's the same. There's something about getting up out of your chair, taking a sticky off the wall, and moving into the done column. It feels, yeah, you get the dopamine levels going and it's like, yeah, totally. I've done that. Yeah, people, you know, clapping, the applause, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have the same thing when you're just on your computer still. And yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, like, and, and the idea of check-in or stand-up really is then a stand-up, whereas in remote, it's <laughs> a sit-down in front of a computer. Um, yeah. I mean, we found that because um, well, of me kind of moving remote for the time being, like we've, we're using Linkit. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I've sounds familiar but i've never looked at it. it it seems to do at the moment it's very much like you where everything's a trade-off from a real board um you know we, we at what my work you know it was very much kind of like everyone everyone that comes in is asked you know oh, why don't we use something online it's like well because a real board is the best source of truth and it's nice it you know i mean you know you're able to huddle around it and work with it and it does feel better but uh, link it seems to do everything we want to do at the moment and have no problems you know when you're just trying to pick uh, pick something wrong with a product <laughs> it's like yeah, you know, yeah. that kind of well will it do this all right it does that okay but does it do this oh yeah it does okay and it's just really kind of as you say like trying we'll see how it how long it lasts for but at the moment that seems to be kind of the working one for us um, I find like another thing I kind of work with, like, did you use GitHub then for uh, get source control? Yeah, we use GitHub for everything. Yeah. And like pull requests through GitHub and code reviews through GitHub. Yeah. I always wonder with that, like, I find that when we do like a pull request and a lot of discussions gone through with the pull request and a lot of like insight into why those decisions were made will be in that pull request. And then you do a commit. And then if you're just looking through your Git log, you don't see that. I just wondering how do you deal with that? Do you kind of like make a reference to that? Oh, you search for that maybe branch in your pull request in GitHub, or do you just kind of leave that knowledge and you know not use it again? Yeah, um, honestly, I don't remember the last time I ever looked at a Git log for useful information like that. <laughs> yeah. um, I always GitHub is like our source of truth. It's so funny, right? Because Git is distributed version control when really it's not because it's still GitHub is everything. So like closed pull requests and closed issues and stuff in GitHub is where I would look for that sort of thing. Uh, but you're right, you're it's locked into that one place. So and it's trying to get it out, isn't it? Exactly. And if you ever wanted to move, heaven forbid, you know, moving from GitHub, it would be kind of like one of those things. Yeah, totally. You're screwed. <laughs> you just kind of have to accept that you are committed to it, I think. That's which... exactly it. In a dis- as you say, in a distributed manner, it's like, this is kind of not what we're expected, you know, the subversion yeah. checkout kind of feeling. Um, uh, one other thing I was going to ask, sorry, I'm completely hogging you, Lou, sorry. <laughs> That's right. <Go> <laughs> um, do, do you experiment a lot with different languages uh, in personal projects? Like, I know you said that you've got like some Laravel plugins, etc., this one, yeah. do you do a lot of, because I know that you, again, we're talking with, uh, with Kent Beck, we're looking at the Smalltalk Patterns book and stuff. Yep, yep. Do, do you, have you done any projects in Smalltalk or? No, I mean, Smalltalk is a, such the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't, like, a lot of people don't know this about Smalltalk, but Smalltalk isn't like a language. Like, it is a language, but you, can, you can't, like, write Smalltalk in Sublime, really. 
or any other editor. Smalltalk is like an environment and there's not like a file that's a class. It's like you get like a browser window where you select a class and it doesn't give you like the implementation of all the methods. That opens like another tree window where you select the method that you want to edit and that pulls that method into the editor. You know what I mean? So it's like a super integrated uh, environment which is really good because you can do crazy useful things with it and it you can in- inspect things at runtime and it, it's really neat but um it's a pretty big commitment i think to jump into trying to do anything with it uh, i haven't even tried to download it and like play with it myself <laughs> i literally have just been like going through that book and translating the examples into languages that i understand and keeping them in like a markdown file which has been like a really useful exercise in just trying to understand the syntax of small talk but um, yeah, I've never done anything with Smalltalk specifically. Um, as far as like other languages, I keep up with r- the Ruby world a lot because uh, there's a lot of a lot of really useful information out there when it comes to building web applications because of Rails, right? So a lot of problems that people talk about in like the Laravel and Symfony world are like problems that there were solutions to five years ago in the Rails world. So if you're willing to kind of like keep up with these different sources, you can find interesting solutions that maybe people aren't talking about yet in the communities that you're in. And I've tinkered, like, I mean, I did Ruby for a job for a few months. Um, I'm not using it on any personal stuff. I don't think I get like a ton of satisfaction out of playing with a language. I like to build things and like solve problems for myself. So I have a tendency to get good at a specific stack or toolkit that I can kind of bend to my will and use that. That's to, it. The output is kind problems. of like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have been playing with Elixir a little bit lately because uh, I've been interested in getting better at functional programming. That's a very interesting language to choose for your first like language, functional language. I think it's because um, it's because of the Dave Thomas book and because Dave Thomas, you know, he kind of like introduced the Western world to Ruby and now he's trying to get people excited about Elixir and Elixir is a, very Ruby looking as far as the syntax is concerned. It's like a totally dynamic uh, functional language with lots of meta programming abilities and you can do lots of crazy stuff with it. But um, the only reason I've really been interested in that is because I've started to find myself using a lot of functional programming concepts in PHP just out of not even because I'm trying to do functional stuff, but just because I'm here, I'm finding ways to do things that it's like, oh, that's the way that you would do it in a functional language. Cool. I just found that that is way better code here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I've been uh, trying to keep up with some of that stuff and trying to look for other interesting, uh, you know, patterns and problem solutions that people have in that space that I can bring back into my like more OO PHP day to day stuff. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's really what I'm trying to glean out of it. I don't think I'm ever going to be. I never say never, but I have no intention of like writing Elixir for a living or anything so no that's really cool i mean like because you said that you know at university or at college you were doing um dot uh, net and stuff like that yeah. and, and java and did you ever think about going into that type of job like when you left or i don't think so <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> they, they they pitched us pretty hard on a couple local companies that are dot net shops as like the really cool places to work but i mean it's such a weird world it's like a totally different planet like the dot net world like everyone in my class, everyone was on a Windows machine except me, right? I was like the only guy with a Mac. And uh, everyone always used to give me like funny looks and be like, how do you like develop on that thing? Like, isn't that just for like, 
you know, check an email or like a photo booth or whatever. I heard you can make your face oh, really man, fat when you take a picture of yourself. No, it's ridiculous. Yeah, right? because, because guy saying you go that, to really? like you go to like a development conference and all you just see is a big auditorium filled with lit up little apples. You That's know exactly I mean? it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of like uh, it's like bizarro world, but uh, as a, I think that was probably the if I was if I had a Windows machine at the time that I went to college, I would probably have a .NET job right now, which is the weirdest like <laughs> the, 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 the thing to think. have. Like, go through, do you know your kind of like your studio recording thing? Having a Mac is decided the end. Yeah, yeah it's you're crazy. not going to become a .NET. It's just like the domino effect of like all these tiny little <laughs> things that like led to this path. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I would ever want to be a .NET developer. Like to me, that seems like uh, I don't know. Maybe there's like a lot of exciting things. Yeah, the microcosm of it, I think there is, you know, and like the lang, you know, like the CLR, and I mean, yeah, it, it like JVM's great, you know, you've got Scala closure and stuff like that, and then in the .NET world, you've got well, we see C sharp and an F sharp and things like that, but yeah. yeah, it does seem a very closed off kind of, you know, this is it kind of world. Yeah, you know, we'll see what in. like open sourcing it, what effect that has. Um, I mean that that's it. and like even like this week you know Apple really uh, open sourcing Swift which is a very functional language though you know I've, I've had experience with building iOS apps with that and it is a great language it's a bit strange um like some of the like, the things that they've te- that they've decided to do with the language but no I mean that's a great choice and open sourcing all these things can't be ro- uh, you know, can't be hurtful because it's just going to yeah. give more choice yeah I mean it'll be interesting that you'll be able to like serve a .NET app from a Linux machine properly without using like mono or, or whatever so i mean there are like a lot of like at least locally there's quite a few like startups using net which seems weird because the operating costs must be high i think at least that's the perception that i have well that's yeah i mean you the licenses that you have to have and etc unless you're you yeah know. like you can pay eight thousand dollars for a copy of visual studio if you want you know what i mean no that's really good i mean uh, uh, completely like sidetracking on that like we're talking about like the small talk stuff uh, small talk stuff again and you know like one, on one of your podcasts you discussed a lot about like well you do talk about like message passing uh, like yeah. the Ruby way versus like strict contracts, like the interfaces that are in the Java and, st- and you know, now kind of yeah, taking yeah. over the PHP world. And I'm kind of wondering, like, where do you stand on that at the moment? Like, do you prefer the idea? Like, how how do you program? Like, do you like like having these strict interfaces and type hinting? Or are you kind of very much like the small talk, you know, I'll pass you a message and if you can handle it, you handle it way. Yeah, um, I was really fired up about that for a little while. I still have strong opinions on it, but uh I believe in the small talk and Ruby approach. I think that's more object oriented. I think that's, I think it's more in line with like the original way Alan Kay thought about object oriented programming. Um, I love the idea that in a system where you're passing messages instead of calling methods or calling functions, that you are passing the onus of compatibility to the function or the, you know, the object that you're sending the message to yep, the receiver. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, if you're thinking in a message or a method calling sort of way, or if you're thinking about, you know, these strict contracts and stuff, you're letting the caller define if the, it's the trust, receiver isn't is it? compatible. It's all about trust. Trust is the right word. Yeah, and 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 I mean, it was one of the funny examples you did mention, and I'd never thought of this before, but it was the the fact that so you have an interface for a stack. But you can yeah. verify that, you know, it's got implement these methods, but you don't know that the behavior is going to be any better. Like yep. it's going to actually, and that to me was just like, yeah, I mean, we, we really much, we're very strict on like, oh, you've got this interface, you must, you, you know, this is how you implement, you know, this, but 
underneath the hood you don't know how it's really going to be doing it so why you know like the python way of kind of like trusting people where everything's public you know yeah. like why do we have these kind of locks and uh, as you say php because you know maybe people coming from c java backgrounds very much you know they like that then they're bringing it into php but i think php is great where it's it, you can mail both you know optionally you can type in if you want to and mm-hmm. and you can use interfaces but i just wonder like on a day-to-day basis like when your projects personally and also at work do you use interfaces like a lot or how, yeah. how do you work on my my personal stuff i don't i did for a long time um i read like the you know, have you read uh, Agile Software Patterns, Principles, Practices, whatever the Uncle Bob book is? Yes. So when I first read that, I was still in college. And that was like, that had like all this information that I was trying to get out of my teachers in college. I didn't know like, how am I supposed to design things? How are things supposed to be architected? How are things supposed to talk to each other, right? And no one could give me a straight answer that I was satisfied with. And then I read this book and it like opened this whole world to me and give me all this terminology and like things like design patterns. No one had ever even said those words to me. So now I had this whole avenue of things to explore, right? And I was so excited by this idea of, you know, interfaces and you can swap things out and whatever. And uh, being able to do that in PHP was cool. And at my day job, we still do that stuff. And the reason that we do it has nothing to do with trying to be strict. It has everything to do with just documenting stuff and making it easier for other people to glean your code after and kind of pick up what's talking to what and what's doing what that's like and i would argue that that is the only benefit of any of that stuff especially in php um but it is a benefit it's not something that you can say well it doesn't matter like uh no matter how hard you try to give a method the best name possible and the parameters the best names possible uh if you're in a particularly complicated part of a system it can be helpful to know like well this takes this parameter but i don't really know what this is and i'm trying to figure out like how this gets here and having those little annotations of what the types are can be helpful despite the fact that i would argue that the type doesn't really define what it actually needs it just is a helpful it's 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 99% of the time the same as what compatibility means because of how the way we build things but it's not guaranteed we use interfaces a lot. I still use interfaces in open source packages I release if I want to, because I again, I use it as documentation, right? So if yep, I create absolutely. a class that um, someone might want to swap out with their own implementation for something, uh, I could just not provide an interface and they can still swap it out with their own implementation. But if I provide an interface, then they can just open the interface and see, well, these are the methods. And That's it. as long as they're fulfilling uh, the behavioral contract, which is not defined in the code and can't really be defined in the code, uh, then it should work okay. But I still will say that you know that that stuff isn't always going to like that you can't define that stuff in the code. I've experimented a little bit with this idea of using traits in tests to um guarantee things that inf- like fulfill the behavioral contract. So instead of using an interface, I would have like say you had like a taggable interface or something, right? So you have like some different resources in your system that you can apply tags to and each one implements taggable because you can add a tag to each one or whatever. You could have a like a trait that you mix into a test that's has all the methods or all the tests that prove something is taggable and behaves the way something that's supposed to be taggable behaves. And you can mix that into the unit tests for the different resources that are supposed to be taggable. And that will prove that they actually uh, follow the contract that you've set out, right? But in practice, actually trying to do that in a test is a little bit more complicated Mm -hmm. than it sounds when you say it out loud. 
Um, so I don't actually do that even now either, but <laughs> it was an interesting idea. No, that sounds really cool. I mean, as you say, like, I think interfaces on public project, they, they, they give you code, they, they give the code and uh, show the person who's using it intent that, yeah, I've designed this in a way that you are able to, you know, use it and extend upon it, you know, and yeah. inject your own kind of concept, you know, having concrete classes kind of does have that, f- I suppose, again, like the DHH podcast, you know, where you're saying I'm, he was used to, you know, concrete classes and the fact that, you know, like, you know, but I can break those concrete classes with monkey patching and things like yeah. that. And yeah. us coming from a very like Java, .NET, uh, PHP, you know, it's very much, no, no, no. Once it's, it's concrete, it's the open close principle, you know, it's, it's open for extension, yeah, yeah, yeah. but close for change. You know, you can't change this. They don't use like a lot of dependency injection in the Ruby world, which is kind of, uh, it's so shocking coming yeah, from that the must PHP be world. That is a, yeah, that is a straight, like, yeah, PHP. You never like, type the new keyword, especially in a constructor. Like, are you out of your mind? Like, what are you doing, right? Uh, but is it really like a crazy strong argument for that most of the time? Probably not. But we have enough tooling in the frameworks and stuff that we use make it so easy to do it. And it, and because of the limited flexibility when it comes to things like monkey patching and PHP, if you want to test something that has some dependencies, you pretty much need to inject it just for the sake of the test. So I don't find it to be like a crazy uh, inconvenience. But it's funny that people still argue that in other communities and and presented as like this really you know crazy architectural idea that no one else that people aren't doing i don't know it's kind of bizarre to me <laughs> absolutely um lou sorry I, th- I know you had some questions i've completely taken over right. no, I mean, I mean, this is really really interesting stuff listening to you two speaking but uh, we, yeah we've got on to obviously the the subject of testing now and um oh, yeah well, i'd be really keen to kind of learn how you got into the testing side of things in the first place and Kind of the reason that I ask is it's probably the one thing on my resume that I'm not doing that I know I should be. And uh, probably two main reasons for that. One of them would be that it seems like the the kind of entry to test-driven development or the learning entry is really difficult to find, like good resources for that. And also there seems to be a shortage of um, like really good real-world examples. Sort of Most places where I look, you kind of get started off with these calculator examples and stuff. They don't really kind of apply to. Well, they they might apply to real projects, but for someone that's never properly done it, like where do where where do you recommend starting from? And you know, how did you how did you do, get into it yourself? Um, I don't know that I have an idea of what the best place to start would actually be, and that's kind of unfortunate <laughs> because that's, um, that's I isn't it? That's one of the part, things. Well, I, and I'll I'll flat out admit that I still don't know what. what the first test I'm supposed to write is when I'm scaffolding out a new application with a framework. Um, it's very difficult to to figure that out sometimes. And uh, I think there needs to be more transparency about that in the community as far as, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I had when I was getting into testing is I felt like everybody knew how to do it but me. Yeah, that's and, where I'm at. And, the imposter uh, syndrome, absolutely. I don't know how to do it either, so yeah, I'm with totally. you on that one. <laughs> but the reality is that nobody knows anything. The thing with imposter syndrome is, you know, everyone knows all this stuff and I don't know anything, but people are trying to tell you, like, you shouldn't have to feel like that. Like, trust me, you know a lot of stuff. You might not realize it, but you know a lot of stuff. Um, I think the reality is that you don't know anything, but nobody else knows anything either, so it's okay. Yeah. So it's not that you're an imposter. 
we're on an even playing field, but it's not because you know more than you think. It's because everyone else knows less than you think. Um, everyone is an expert in something, but there's millions of things that everybody doesn't know. And I've always wanted to do like a lightning talk at a conference or something where I just ask questions like, raise your hand if you've never implemented Elasticsearch in production. Raise your hand if you've never used MongoDB in production. Raise your hand. You know what I mean? And you'll see that, that everyone, whoever you're sitting next to, they're going to raise that their hand my for hand something. That's my hand up for both of those, by the way. Yeah, that's my hand up for both <laughs> yeah, of those. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? So those are the ideas that come in, into my head, right, are the things that I don't know. But I promise you that there's not going to be a single person in there who doesn't raise their hand for 30% of those questions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think it would be helpful if there was a little, if it was a little easier to know that somehow. Because uh, the hardest thing that I found when I was getting into testing is there's so much talk about isolated testing and um, you know, using mocks and stubs and tell, don't ask and the goose book and all this stuff that it, it just sounds like everyone knows exactly what they're doing and they're writing these perfect yeah, they're tests. They're all on the right track and they're, yeah, they're writing the perfect tests and they're all, you know, and it's all isolated because they yeah. forbid not having an isolated test, you know, that would exactly, take the whole system. Exactly. And you're using like a Laravel or something and you have like, um, the example I gave in the talk that I, I give is you have a customer class and some orders in the system and you want to be able to get the open orders for a customer, which are orders that haven't been shipped, right? So if you have a customer open orders method, you know, how do you test that in isolation? You go through all this trouble of like trying to mock the database and all these like Demeter chain mocks with mockery and all this crazy stuff. And you just end up with this super ridiculous test that doesn't even prove anything. All because like you're under this impression that like you're supposed to test everything in isolation. And if you're not, like you're somehow a bad programmer or whatever. And I think that's like total BS. Um, I think the, the trickiest thing about testing is there's this bar, this standard that people have set that it's, that you're supposed to do everything in such this perfect way, but very little code that exists in the real world can be tested in that way. Like Apart I'm from sure fitness, l- obviously. Uh, of course, <laughs> of course. So if you're trying to get into testing and you feel this pressure to write tests that way, chances are like you're probably not writing code that's even testable enough in the ways that you want to write those tests anyways. So you're just going to, just fight with yourself so hard and it's not going to be productive and you're, you're not going to accomplish anything. And at best you'll end up with tests that took you way too long to write that don't actually prove anything. So I think the idea of writing uh, functional tests and integration tests is absolutely the best way to get started with testing to me. Like I I'm always trying to like design my code better and think about, you know, how can I write this test in a cleaner way? But the guiding principle that I live by, no matter what, when I'm writing these tests is just like, how can I prove that this thing works? That's the only thing I care about. Because that's the idea of a test, isn't it? Fundamentally, that's it. It, It's testing. It works. Well, some people will tell you it's not. Some people will tell you it's about guiding your design. But I don't think that's the right place to start. I think uh, if you just want to learn the mechanics of how to test things and, you know, understand how to test different sorts of things, then uh, the best way to do it is just keep that in the back of your mind and write whatever test you can think to write that when you run it gives you confidence that the thing you were testing actually works. And don't worry about the fact that uh, it's using six real collaborators and you're not using any mocks or stubs or that, um, you know, maybe you're using like some sort of integration testing thing like maybe you're using behat with like the goot driver or something and it's just like clicking around on a website maybe that's the best way to write like the first test for a blog or something because the thing about testing is um if you're trying to write unit tests all the time right and you're focused on isolated unit tests 
if you're trying to use like a BDD approach, and I, to me it's not even a BDD approach. To me it's just like a intelligent approach to writing software where you're setting up goals for what is it that I need the software to be able to do? Like what benefit does this need to provide the user? And that's kind of like your driving force behind the things that you're writing. You're not going to have those units figured out in your head to test. You know what I mean? You're going to be thinking about what's like the what's like the public interface of either this library that I'm writing that people are going to work with or we're building this app and someone needs to be able to log in and they need to be able to do this and then this will happen. Um, until you have some implementation of that, like you're not going to know what the best underlying unit level design is for that. And if you try and write those unit tests up front and get that design wrong, you can't refactor because those tests are testing units that might not end up existing after you've done the refactoring. So you have to test it like you have to pick the level of abstraction that you're most comfortable saying is stable. Like everything under this can change, but I'm pretty sure this is the public API for this layer of the software. Or this the boundary. Yeah, I you got. I think that it. What was it? Whose talk was Ian? The TDD. What went wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good talk. Yeah, and he talks about too, like never write tests while you're refactoring, right? Because because you've already done the test, you've already verified that it works. Anything that you create out of that, you know, is something that is now or is already been covered by that test. You get you still might want to write tests uh, once you've kind of decided that okay, I've split it out into these components. The thing I tested was maybe really big, and I have these like two dozen test cases to cover all the different situations. But I've decided that this is the design that I'm happy with. I'm happy moving down one level and like writing tests for these pieces now. Um, the other approach though is like, uh, and I talked to Constantine and this is what he said he would do is you would write that higher level test and drive out the implementation, but he would still test drive every single class that he creates underneath it. Even if there's a good chance that a class is going to get deleted because it's that's, wrong. To- that's what yeah, I was just about to say because to me it's it's very hard because then what you've got is kind of like okay i've got a test first way but then i'm going back and i'm writing tests you know like the wrong you know kind of like the the wrong way where you're writing them after the fact and i suppose where do you go with that then do you test drive everything and to test first or i suppose test driving is different to test first so test do you test first everything yeah i try and test everything first when i have enough knowledge of what it is that i want to make that i feel like that is the right thing to do um Sometimes you just like don't have a friggin' clue at all what you're even trying to do, and you just need to like open a file and just start spewing crap on the keyboard and see like how does this library work? How does RabbitMQ even work? I don't know, right? And just like That's get exactly, things to yep. sort of work, but then you can delete it and you know test drive out what you have an idea for. Um, I find what I honestly do most of the time is I'll write that test that's at like that lowest stable abstraction kind of level. And um, I won't write the tests for anything underneath it. There's a risk there that you might int- you might extract like a small object from this main thing that you tested that ends up getting used by a different part of the system as well. In that case, you probably should write a test f- for that small piece as well. Because but now that's become public facing almost. Yeah, because like, now yeah. it's not, now it's not a private implementation detail of the first thing that you were trying to test, right? Um, so I think that my opinion, and maybe it'll change over time, is that. You can't just always test everything first and expect that you're never going to have to test something after the fact ever. Like the reality is like sometimes code is going to get written as a result of writing a test for another class that you've extracted this other class from and there was no pressure forcing you to write a test for that necessarily and you don't know that you need to test that independently until you've 
use that somewhere else. And there's also no real way to know that you didn't have a test for it when you started using it somewhere else. So there's no like mechanical robotic way to like checklist through all these things and make sure you end up. Yeah. Just have to try it and do a good job. That's, that's, and it's uh, all right for now. I think that's where I live my life now is, you know, you, you go from, it has to be perfect or purity, but really it's like, does it do the job right now? Yes, it does. That's good enough for now. You know, because if you become too perfectionist and, you know, that's where it does in the isolation where you think everything has to be isolated and you feel disappointed. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, you're solving the problem. You, you have done what you're meant to do, you know, and you've been able to use test driven. You know, you've driven it by test. You've test first on these bits. But, you know, yeah, you know, I think no, I completely agree with you there. And I mean, my, my last question and thank you again for coming on. Um, I really appreciate your time. We've probably kept you for too long. No, <laughs> um, it's OK. Just wondering, like. What what feature would you? Because I suppose PHP is your you know fundamental language that you use on a day to day basis, and I'm just wondering what feature would you love to see added to PHP? Oh man, there's a lot. <laughs> um, let me think. If I could say like one thing, probably the thing that drives me nuts on a day to day basis the absolute most is the use keyword in anonymous functions. <laughs> The closure, which isn't really a closure. I saw yeah, your yeah. tweets and I was yeah. like, yeah, absolutely. It's, if yeah. I could get rid of that, I'd be really happy. I would love if we had built-in uh, property get set syntax like they have in C Sharp. Because I, like, to me, that's all about like, following the uniform access principle, right? I, I hate either having to make a decision between getters for everything or I like to, I would love it if we were in a spot where we could differentiate between things that are actions versus things that are data just by whether it's a property or a method you know what i mean and you can do that in net and even in like ruby it's the opposite way you can't differentiate between anything but everything's always the same and and you never have to worry about caring about the difference between them because you can't access instance variables from outside of a class anyways it has to be behind uh, a method but the methods look like properties so it's okay yeah. <laughs> um i don't know aside from that i mean i feel like there's things that i'm always ranting about, How about like short closure syntax yeah short closure syntax would be great Ooh. but i mean i write enough javascript that i would be okay with it like it's not the end of the world but that would be nice um monkey patching i would love to have monkey patching i don't see why not like uh just because you can do bad things with it doesn't mean we shouldn't yeah, have it exactly you can't yeah you have to trust the developer yeah. that, have, you know, s- that- have you seen the dhh just talk why ruby it was a yes, ruby keynote absolutely. Dude, oh yes my favorite part is he was like people can hang themselves with rope so does that mean we should outlaw rope is that the main use case for rope <laughs> it's just so funny man but i totally agree right like it's a dynamic language you can do all sorts of other like runtime stuff just like let us do whatever we want like don't try and yeah, protect, protect me because, yeah, from myself exactly because you, you're not going to like the same thing with these contracts is people will exploit if they want to people will do bad things yeah. you know it's good developers will do good things and you trust yeah, the developer yeah. and the worst part about that is like there's two ways that it can go right you can say like if you point out to someone well listen like this interface really just tells you what the public methods are um first of all you would say it doesn't tell you what it's supposed to return and they'll be like oh you're right we must get return type hints into PHP so we know what it returns. It's like, fuck. Or <laughs> they might be, or you could say, well, it doesn't say that, you know, when I pop something off the stack, that the stack should now be, you know, one less than it was before. <gasps> we must somehow add design by contract. Let's get annotations in there so we can That's like, it, add these, based, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, well, why don't we just go the other way and just say like, forget it. And just people can like write, 
people can just try hard to do good work and write tests and, you know, take your hands off. Just let people be responsible for their own code and don't try and do it automatically with the language. I mean, people are going to write bad code or, you know, scary code in any language. And you can write the worst code ever in PHP still. I don't care how many type ins that you use. That's exactly, just Just because... Uh, we have return type hints. Doesn't mean I can't call my SQL query in a template. You know <laughs> what I mean? That's so, so stupid. Um, other features, I would love if we had native uh, array objects in PHP. Because yes. I hate the array functions more than anything. So I like, no matter what, I pull in that Illuminate support package on everything I work on just so I can have the collection. That's it. Just because I'm doing so much of this map reduce like stuff trying to do this and you just want it to flow you don't want i just want it to go left to right yeah i don't want to read it like inside out uh if we had if everything was objects that would be great like string objects that would be awesome too and the one thing that will never ever ever get into php that i think would be awesome would be if an object implements the double underscore call method that it automatically satisfies any interface that you say that object yeah that yeah i don't no one will ever no one will agree with me (laughs) but i've run into situations where that's been so annoying so many times because i feel like say you're creating a decorator for something and you're only changing two methods out of the 10 that are exposed in the object that you're decorating to have to implement 10 methods when you're only changing two and manually delegate the other ones to me expresses intent way less than here's the two methods that i'm overriding and also check it out i'm delegating every other method exactly absolutely agree yeah so i don't know that we'll see we'll see what happens php 7 has a lot of cool stuff in it anyways i'll never use return type hints ever i'll never <laughs> use scalar type hints ever but uh it's still cool so yeah <laughs> what about you i i think i'm with you i mean again like real clo- closures would be great i think that to me is the, the fact you have to use use. I know people say it's more declarative. Hey, it's great, you know, but it's more express, you know, you're able to see what's actually happening. But those people are wrong. Well, this is it, isn't it? it <laughs> it's not right. It's not what a closure is. And and then as you say, like, you know, hip hop, or not hip hop, yeah, HVM, you know, like they've got called them lambdas. It's completely yeah. the wrong way around. Like, how is that going to work? And yeah, I don't know. I think it was a, a implementation detail, the reason why they had to use use or something. I'm not sure. Exactly. I think it was too. I'm sure there's yeah. like a reason behind why it's hard for them to do it properly. The other way, it probably introduces a lot of weird edge cases and stuff where maybe it's like impossible for them to do it by reference or something. Or maybe maybe that was the big thing. Maybe it was like, well, is it by reference or is it by value? Some people would expect That's it by exactly. value. Some, you because, know, yeah, so. you have to specify it and stuff. No, I think that to me would be great. Um, I mean, uh, sorry, Lou, have you got <laughs> any other questions? I really have just hogged the mic. No, I'm, I'm fine. But I, we need to kind of wrap it up, I guess. We're getting past the past the hour, aren't we? But it's gone so fast. I can't I believe know, it. It's we been crazy. Well, th- <laughs> again, Adam, really... thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Um, no, it's really fun. Your work. I'd, love to, I'd love to know what you've got coming up for Full Stack Radio. The next episode is uh, with Ian Landsman of uh, Userscape. We, do, we chat about uh, kind of what different business models and uh what the problem is with SaaS and how people should be uh looking for ideas in different places and you know how the uh, 20 dollars a month thing is probably not the uh, best way to build something that you think is going to be successful so that was a that was a really good episode after that i don't even know so 
maybe I'll have you guys on full stack radio and we can continue <laughs> this conversation. That would be awesome. I would, <laughs> yeah, that would be a dream come true. But again, thank yeah. you very much, Adam. Been really great. And I'm, I hope, yeah, your house is everything's okay and your girlfriend oh, enjoying yeah. it. Breaking <laughs> the house and then you have to fix it all. You get the new tail rail. <laughs> I think that's the name of this podcast, isn't it? I think we've just found it, you know. Hope you get the new tail rail. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh thank you very much man have a good awesome. day, uh, good rest of the day and cheers yeah. adam yeah thanks guys this was awesome uh, we should do it again sometime when right, yeah. it's, it's, it has it really has it's crazy um well audience thank you very much and yeah this has been another episode of three devs and a maybe and i um, hope you have a good week bye goodbye you've been listening to three devs and a maybe you can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com Or follow us on Twitter at the number three, devs and a maybe.